our previous lesson last week, we began our study of chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Revelation. These two chapters combine to serve as the prologue to the seven-year tribulation period, which the Apostle John began to describe for us in chapter 6. Now, it's critical that this two-chapter prologue precedes the outpouring of God's tribulation judgments upon the earth because this two-chapter prologue presents for us a scene in heaven. We're back up in heaven now. Remember the up and down movement? A scene in heaven which serves as the key to understanding the purpose behind those judgments. Chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation also demonstrate that the one who brings about the tribulation devastations and disasters has the absolute right and the absolute authority to do so. Well, after John was caught up into the third heaven, which we looked at also last week, the sight that he then focused on was a throne. And what he saw concerning that heavenly throne is what we're going to consider in the third part of our continuing outline for chapter 4 of Revelation. After his description of the throne, then John's attention was turned to a throng which was situated around the throne. And the heavenly throng consisted of two groups of beings, four living creatures and four and twenty elders. And they're what we're going to consider as we look at the fourth and final section in our outline. So in this study, which I told you is entitled The Throne and Its Occupant, we're going to cover verses 3 and then we're going to skip verse 4 because I'm not going to have enough time this morning to talk about the 4 and 20 elders. We'll, we'll talk about them next week. So we're going to skip verse 4, which talks about them, and then we're going to look at verses 5 to 9 as we will look first of all at the throne, and then we're going to look at the first part of the throng as we consider the four living beasts. So that's where we're going this morning. But before we discuss John's description of heaven's throne, we need to realize that whenever the Bible discusses heaven, it has the difficulty of relaying to mortal human beings the things of another world, a world, you know, with which you and I are totally unfamiliar. We've never been there. So we don't, we've never seen what it has to, what it, what it is all about. In our wildest imaginations, in our, in our greatest dreams, I don't think that we could really imagine, you know, what it's like to be in heaven. The marvel and the wonder and the beauty and the resplendence of heaven. And uh, especially would we have difficulty trying to comprehend God himself and what he looks like. We only know what I've written up here, which is told to us by Paul in 1 Corinthians 2.9, that I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. So we're gonna, that's what we're going to look at this morning, and it's going to be difficult. Ex- explaining heaven to mortal human beings would be comparable, except even more difficult, would be comparable to trying to explain let's say, a satellite dish and cable television or the Internet web system to a primitive tribe of aborigines who had never been more than five miles from their remote jungle village. And so for this reason, the Holy Spirit inspired John to describe much of what he saw up there when he was caught into the third heaven by way of the use of symbols. And many of the symbols which depict heaven for us that John used have a counterpart in the Old Testament scripture. And so, thankfully, this is going to make it a little bit easier for us to understand the rich and the deep meaning behind the sights which met John's wondrous eyes. Now, so with that introduction, let's move right into our outline. Last week, remember, we looked at the trumpet and we looked at the translation. This morning, we're going to look at the throne and part of the throng. The word throne is one of the key words in all of the book of Revelation. The word throne is mentioned 46 times in this 66th book of the Bible. And it only appears 15 times in all of the rest of the New Testament. Particularly is the word throne a key word of chapters 4 and 5. 
And it appears here in these two chapters 18 times. So that's about 40% of the times that the word throne appears in Revelation are in these two chapters. The throne of God, the eternal throne of God, is a fixed point in heaven. And everything else is located in relationship to it. And this is why we will read such expressions as... Behold a throne, in the midst of the throne, on the throne, from the throne, about the throne, before the throne, out of the throne, round about the throne, in these two chapters. Go through the chapters and highlight. I did that in my Bible. Highlight every time you see the word throne. God's throne is the fixed center of the universe and of heaven. It is the place of final and absolute authority. It is the center of God's rulership over all of the activities of heaven and earth and under the earth, of hell itself, of the whole universe. So it would seem now that the Holy Spirit, through John, by using the word throne so many times, especially in these two chapters, that the Holy Spirit is assuring us the readers, that no matter what might happen on earth, God is still on his what? Throne. God is still in complete control. No matter what interpretation a Christian might use as they come to this book of Revelation, whether they use the idealist interpretation, the preterist, the historicist, or the futuristic view, across the board, all Christians do agree that the book of Revelation emphasizes the glory and the sovereignty of the triune God. So using the throne then as our focal point, we're going to look through the eyes of John at that which is round about the throne or on the throne. We're going to look first of all at the royal one on the throne, God himself. Then we're going to discuss the rainbow about the throne Then we will look at the rumblings coming from the throne. And last, we'll look at the resplendence before the throne as we look at the seven lamps of fire and the sea of glass. Sounds exciting, doesn't it? This is something we will be seeing one day. It it just boggles the mind to read about it now, but one day we will see it for ourselves. So at this point, let's look at the royal one on the throne as we read. What I want to do, I want to just read verses 1, 2, and then we'll look at the first part of 3 for this topic. But I want to put the whole thing into context, so let's just start at the beginning of the chapter. John says, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And now our verse, And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. I'll end there. Based upon what is said, if you will look ahead now down at verse 8, by way of praise to this one who is sitting on the throne, and what is that praise? It is the words, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Based upon that, we know that the one sitting on the throne is none other than God himself. When Isaiah... The prophet Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. He wrote about this in Isaiah 6, verse 1. He also heard creatures before the throne crying out the words, Holy, holy, holy. Apparently one holy for each member of the Trinity. In Revelation 1, 4, back there in that first chapter, we learned that the salutation blessing of grace and peace that was given to the seven churches was sent from God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. But God the Father there in verse 4 of chapter 1 was referred to, remember, as him which is and which was and which is to come. That course speaks of his eternality. So this... Now, when we go back to what we just read in chapter 4, verse 3, this is the same title now being used 
um, by the four living creatures. I don't mean verse 4, I mean verse 8. As um, they are praising the one sitting on the throne. They're saying, you know, Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. So we know, based upon these things, that this one sitting on the throne is God. He is even called Lord God Almighty by the four living creatures. And that in the Hebrew is Jehovah Elohim El Shaddai. And all three of those names or titles for God are well-known strong names for God the Father. Now in verse 3, John, who was of course writing under divine inspiration, attempted to describe this one sitting on the throne. And he did so... By using just one short little phrase with words really that that just emphasize color. John told us that the one upon the throne was to look upon, this is in verse 3, was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And that's all he wrote to describe the throne's occupant. That's it. Now the jasper stone was a hard, well, I imagine it still is, a hard and a brilliant crystal type of a stone, kind of like a diamond. This was the only picture I could find of a a diamond in my transparencies. It was like a diamond, except that it was purplish in its color. Now, the sardine stone, I don't really like that word sardine because... Yeah, it makes me think of sardines, and I don't like sardines. I'm sorry if you do. My husband loves them. But it is also called, referred to as a sardius, so you'll hear me use the word sardius. A sardius stone is the color of ruby red. So the jasper is a purplish color, and the sardius stone is a rich ruby red. 1 Timothy 6.16 tells us that God dwells in light. You know, his garment, the covering over God is light. And Paul said, which no man can approach unto whom no man hath seen nor can see. God, you see, cannot be described in his fullness. He can't be described in his fullness by John, by Isaiah, or by anyone else for that matter. But the light which covers him, the light in which he dwells, the light which emanates from God, can be seen. And this is what John is trying, you know, in the best way he can, to describe for us as looking like a jasper stone and like a sardius stone. He really only is describing the light that is emanating from the throne. No features are mentioned, if you'll notice. John merely saw the light of God as the color of these two beautiful, bright, precious stones. The jasper, being purplish, very possibly could symbolize or represent God's royalty. And the sardius, which I told you is a rich red, a ruby red, very possibly could symbolize his redemption. You know, he sent his son to shed his blood so that we would be redeemed. Or it possibly also could symbolize God's judgment. So it could symbolize his bloodshed or bloodshed, one or the other, or both, probably. Now it's interesting to notice that when John later described the new Jerusalem descending from heaven, from God, in Revelation 21, verses 10 and 11, he said that she, describing the new Jerusalem, she had the glory of God... And her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. So it would seem that John was describing the light emanating from the throne of God, and he described the brilliance of it like that of a crystal clear precious stone of royal purple, and also as the redemptive and or judgmental red. So, you know, these colors seem to have to do with the glory of God. The crystal clarity, you know, the fact that you can see through them speaks what do you think of? Of what do you think it speaks? His holiness, God's holiness, the fact that it's crystal clear. Got these colors, but it's clear, and that speaks of his absolute purity and holiness. The significance of the two stones, however, goes even beyond their mere colors. 
It's interesting to realize that both the jasper and the sardius stones were found upon the breastplate of the Jewish high priest. And we can read about this in Exodus 28, verses 17 to 20. On the high priest's breastplate, there were 12 stones, you know, three across and four rows, one for every tribe of Israel. And, of course, those tribes came from the 12 sons of Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to what? To Israel. Now, these stones symbolize the fact that the Jewish high priest was representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And otherwise, he was, in other words, he was representing all of Israel when he went in on, on their behalf before the altar in the tab- tabernacle and then, of course, later on in the temple. Now, the, the, um, the last stone on his uh, breastplate stone was jasper and jasper was the representative stone of the tribe of reuben the oldest son of jacob i think i have these reversed i do there we go and the la- the first stone on the breastplate was sardius and that was uh, the stone of the tribe of ben- benjamin each tribe had their own stone And so the Sardius represented the tribe of Benjamin, the last born of Jacob's son, and the Jasper was the last stone on the breastplate of the high priest, and it represented the tribe of Reuben. So it's interesting here, we kind of have that the last shall be first. (laughs) Reuben was the last. I thought that was interesting. That's why I had it reversed on my notes, because Reuben is the first son, but he's the last stone, and Benjamin is the last son, but he's the first stone, so it's reversed. So anyway, because these two stones represented the first and the last tribes of Israel, it's understood that they also could be regarded as including all of the other stones of the other ten tribes as well. So they represent then, you know, as John's looking at the light coming from the throne and he sees the jasper and the sardius colors, he is really seeing the whole of God's covenant, covenanted people whom he held close to his heart. And that, of course, is why the high priest wore these stones on his chest covering his heart to show that God holds his people close to his heart. Now, the one upon the throne was about to begin the completion of his redemptive program for his covenant people, for Israel. He was about to complete Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy. He was about to begin the one remaining seven-year period which had been determined for who? For Israel and for Jerusalem. Remember, we talked about this a lot last week. Not for the church, but for Israel and for Jerusalem, so that when this seven year period was all over, Israel's transgressions against God would be ended and she would be reconciled back to Him, and He could then bring her into a position of everlasting righteousness. We read these things, this is His purpose. For the whole 70 weeks program, and we read about this in Daniel 9, verse 24. And this, of course, these things would occur when she finally would accept Jesus Christ as her Messiah and her true deliverer. But it would take seven years of judgmental purification to prepare her for this truth. It would truly be, this seven years would truly be the time of Jacob's trouble. So in this vision of God on his throne, John not only saw God in his glory as royalty represented by the jasper purple stone and in his purity and his holiness represented by the crystal clearness of the stones, but he also saw him as redeemer and judge represented by the sardius, you know, ruby color red. He not only saw all those things, but he also saw him in his covenant relationship to Israel. See, God had not forgotten Israel. He would yet bring that nation to himself through his son. But there's even more significance involved in the two jewels which John mentioned. The jasper stone, here's where I need to use this picture. The jasper stone... I I said represented the tribe of Reuben. 
And Reuben literally means, in the Hebrew, it means, behold a son. And the sardius stone represents the tribe of Benjamin. And Benjamin literally means, in the Hebrew, the son of my right hand. So the stones also testify of whom? Of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, the Son of God's right hand, the true great high priest. He is the first and the last. Notice how many times we have first and last here. You know, the the first tribe of Israel, the last tribe of Israel, the first stone on the breastplate, the last stone on the breastplate. Uh, You know, all this is is symbolic. There's so much richness in the symbolism showing us that God is the first and the last. And, of course, that Jesus Christ also is the first and the last. Well, before we go on to describe other aspects of the throne, let me say that there are a number of godly Bible teachers and Bible expositors who claim that the one who sat on this throne here that we just read about is not God the Father, but that he is God the Son. And they point out the fact that Christ promised, if you want to look at Revelation 3.21, that God promised, or Christ promised the overcomers of the church age that he would grant them to sit with him in his throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my Father in his throne. Well, the problem with this is that in this particular heavenly prologue scene that we have in chapters 2 and 3, Christ is identified as being separate from the one on the throne. I mean, you know, they're, they're one because God is one, three persons in one God. But in this scene here, he is identified as being separate from the one on the throne because he is not only referred to separately as the lamb, if you look over at chapter 5, verse 8, and also verse 13, he's referred to as the lamb. But he's also seen in verse 7 as approaching the throne and ta- taking the book that we'll talk about, the the scroll, out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. So he cannot be on the throne and yet be taking something out of the hand of the one who is on the throne at the same time. Now, some Bible expositors and teachers have attempted to explain this problem here by saying that the one on the throne in chapter 4 is Jesus Christ, whereas the one on the throne in chapter 5 is God the Father. Another point of view claims that both chapters 4 and 5 present God the Father on the throne in his special character as the God of Israel. And still others have stated that this seeming contradiction here may be resolved if we remember that the doctrine of the Trinity, as it's explained by the Lord Jesus himself in John 14, 9, where he said, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. You know, the mystery of the hypostatic union. However, it is worth noticing that the one sitting on the throne is not described in any way other than what? Colors, you know, the light emanating from him and these colors that have been mentioned. There is no anthropomorphic descriptions of like white hair or his eyes, you know, um, fiery eyes. No mention of blazing feet or any mention of clothing like we had mentioned back in John's vision of the resurrected Christ in chapter 1. God only appears as man in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So it would seem, and I can't be dogmatic here, but it would seem that the glory of God the Father is the intent here of chapters 4 and 5. Yet, on the other hand, because all three members of the Trinity are one, we do see all three members of the Trinity in this throne room scene. They are there. We do find God the Holy Spirit in this throne room scene. We'll talk about him a little bit later. He's in verse 5 of chapter 4. We also, as I've already pointed out, we do see that God the Son is here as well. All three members 
of the triune Godhead do occupy heaven's throne. They do. They are all on the throne in heaven. But I would say that in this particular scene, it is the Father whose presence on the throne is being purposely emphasized, probably due to his covenant relationship with Israel. Because why? Well, because he is about to reinstate his 70 weeks program in order to complete her redemption. Okay, let's move on now and look at the rainbow about the throne. And for that, we look at the last part of verse 3. John goes on and says, And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. Now, there are a number of significant truths about the rainbow that goes around God's throne. A lot of symbolism in the rainbow, as you can imagine, just as there were with the two stones, Jasper and Sardius. First of all, we notice that what is its color? Emerald. It's emerald. And what color is emerald? I heard it over here. Green. It's a beautiful greenish color. Green is the color that God chose to clothe his creation in, right? If you think of God's creation, what color comes to your mind? green. Unless you live in the middle of the ocean, you might think of blue, but we would normally think of green. This green rainbow then reminds us that the one who is sitting upon heaven's throne is the creator God. Actually, it's very fascinating to realize (coughs) that, uh, that the colors of the two stones... I've got the wrong picture. Well, you see that? That's the rainbow going around. I'll put that up in a little bit again. But I had a lot of fun yesterday making a rainbow. I felt like I was back in kindergarten here. <clears throat> but it's this is really fascinating. Think about the colors of the two stones which John used to describe God um, in that first scene that we looked at when he was talking about God. Well, those colors correspond to the first, here we go again with the first and the last, they correspond to the first and the last colors of the rainbow spectrum. You know, there are only seven colors in a rainbow spectrum. There's only seven basic colors, just like there's only seven notes in a music scale. I mean, you know, the number seven is God's number of perfection. He perfected music, he perfected art. I mean, it's just fascinating when you think about these things. And I remembered from my grammar school years how to remember the colors of the rainbow. How many of you memorized the little alliteration Roy G. Biv? (laughs) Uh, That's how I remember the colors. Red, orange, yellow, blue, no, green, excuse me, Biv. Blue, indigo, and violet. Well, The um, red represents the sardius stone, right? The sardius was the first stone on the breastplate, and here it is the first color in the rainbow spectrum. And violet is the last, just like the the jasper stone I told you was a purplish-violet color. It's the last. And where is green? It's in the dead center of the rainbow. I mean, the, the rainbow spectrum as we see it, it's in the dead center. And I wondered, could this possibly mean that God's creation is that which is closest to his heart? You know, just like the breastplate was over his heart and green, his creation, of which you and I are part, is that which is closest to his heart. I don't know. I might be putting too much into it, but I enjoy doing things like this. So God, by the colors used to describe him, is again seen as the first and the last, the beginning and the ending, the alpha and the omega. Not only were the stones themselves the first and last on the high priest's breastplate, but also the colors of the stones are the first and the last on the color spectrum. Now the throne rainbow, here's where I'll go back to this. The throne rainbow is not only an an unusual rainbow in that it is all green. Has anybody ever seen a completely green rainbow? I mean, that would be a sight to behold, wouldn't it? (laughs) Well, so it's unusual in that way, but it's also unusual from our perspective because, (coughs) why? 
Right. It's a complete circle. And we, because we're limited down here on Earth, we never see a complete rainbow. Now, my husband, who's a pilot, has seen many complete rainbows. He says once you get off the land and get up into the air, you can see a complete rainbow. So when we're in heaven, we will see complete rainbows. But what does the fact that it is round signify? The E eternality again just like the first and the last means he's eternal but you know a circle has no beginning and it has no end so again it symbolizes God as the eternal one now just as we had to go back to the book of Genesis to appreciate the fullness of the symbolic meaning of the stones on the high priest's breastplate we now also need to go back to Genesis to remember the significance of the rainbow In the ninth chapter of Genesis, we're told that after God had destroyed the ungodly of the world by sending a global catastrophe in the way of a flood, what did he set in the sky? A rainbow. We all know this story from, you know, our childhood. And then he told Noah, who alone with his family was left on earth, that the rainbow was his symbol, God's symbol, of his promise that he would never ever again destroy the world by water, by a flood. So the rainbow is a symbol of God's faithfulness. And a whole circular rainbow is a symbol of his complete faithfulness. In other words, God keeps his promises, no doubt about it. John, now, who is an apostolic representative of the church, could stand before the blazing throne of God with all of its lightning and thunder proceeding out from it. You don't know about that yet, but we'll get to that next. And John could know, as he looked at that emerald rainbow, that emerald circular rainbow, that the fire and the judgments which he soon would see being poured out upon the earth below, that those judgments wouldn't touch him. So the rainbow is God's reminder that he is faithful to keep his promises to preserve his own, just as he preserved Noah. Now, because the rainbow is a reminder that God does keep his promises, you and I can rest assured that he will keep his Abrahamic and his Davidic covenant promises, which he made to what nation? Israel. He is not finished with Israel, as some people would claim. You know, some say that God's promises are instead going to be made through the church. God promised Israel the land from the river of Egypt to the river Euphrates. He didn't promise the church, and the church is never going to inherit that land. We're going to be out of here. God is going to finish with Israel. He is going to keep his promises that he made to her. Otherwise, they would go unfulfilled. Otherwise, the 70 weeks prophecy would go unfulfilled, and God would not be a promise keeper. Oh, how about that? Furthermore, the rainbow is a reminder that just like Noah and his family, God always has... uh, Huh? I already showed it. Yeah, you're right. I already showed it. God always, always has his remnant of believers. This is another thing that it's showing, the rainbow. God always has a remnant even in the midst of the most un godly generations and societies. So, likewise, there will be a a remnant in the tribulation period. And the rainbow reminds us that even in his wrath, God will remember mercy. Habakkuk 3.2 tells us that even in his wrath, he will remember mercy. There will be many people saved during the tribulation period. Now, John would need this reminder about the rainbow in order to calm him down as he stood there before this throne because the very next thing that he described for us was the rumblings, the judgmental rumblings coming out from this throne. So he needed that sign of the, the, the circular emerald green rainbow. Now, by the way, before we get into the rumblings from the throne, 
I want to point this out to you. When we will eventually get to reading about the great white throne in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 to 15. And before this throne, of course, will appear only those who are condemned to eternal separation from God. We're going to find when we read about that great white throne that there is no rainbow seen around it. Why is that? Because it will be too late. There will be no mercy remembered in wrath in that final day, in that final tragic day. Okay, let's look at the rumblings from the throne. And for this, we're going to read just, we're going to skip verse 4, you see, because that talks about the 4 and 20 elders, and we're going to discuss them next week. For now, just skip over and look at the first part of verse 5 to read about the rumblings from the throne. John says, And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. Okay, that's all I'm going to read right now. Now, although the throne was surrounded by this emerald rainbow depicting grace and mercy, yet from the throne itself came forth the sounds of judgment. These are sounds of judgment, lightning and thunderings and, and voices. You know, when the canopy of invisible water vapor, which once covered this whole earth in a greenhouse type of effect, when that canopy was released at the time when God broke up the fountains of the great deep, we can read about it in Genesis 7, 11, it tells us that thunders and lightnings accompanied the first and the, the most violent atmospheric electrical storm that probably this earth has ever seen. Well, I know that this earth has ever, ever seen. And how long did that storm last? It lasted 40 days, 40 nights. So the rumblings from God's heavenly throne here remind us of the time of judgment past, you know, at the time of the great flood. They also speak of a time of judgment about to break on the earth once again in the seven years of the tribulation period. So the throne that John saw was the throne of judgment and not the throne of grace because with the removal of the church from the earth, the day of grace is over. Repeatedly, as we're going to discuss the tribulation period on earth, as we read through chapters 6 through 18, we're going to be reading about lightnings and thunderings and voices, you know, trumpet voices, etc. And they will all be coming from heaven's throne. So this then is a time of whose wrath? It's a time of God's wrath being poured out in judgment on the earth. Even though it will be true that Satan is also going to be venting his wrath and men will be venting their wrath on one another as well, yet it is God's wrath which is permitting all of these things. When men spurn God's grace, then they come under the condemnation of his law. And by the way, when God gave the law on Mount Sinai, there was also lightnings and thunderings and voices. And therefore, when they come under the condemnation of his law, his judgment is both just and it is righteous. So, now, John has told us about the one on the throne. He's described the rainbow about the throne and the rumblings coming from the throne. So let's see what he now had to say about the resplendence before the throne. And for this, um, our attention will be drawn to two great wonders that he saw before the throne. The first is described as the seven spirits of God and the second as the sea of glass. So let's look at the last part of verse 5. After talking about the lightnings and thunders and voices, he says, And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So the next sight that met John's amazed um, eyes here consisted of seven lamps of fire burning before the throne. And we're told, without having to speculate, we don't have to guess about this, we are told that these seven lamps are the seven spirits of God. Now, 
Although some people have interpreted these seven spirits as angels, they say that these are seven angels standing before God's throne, the title, the seven spirits of God, seems to be best understood as a representation of who do you think? Exactly, the Holy Spirit in his sevenfold character and ministry. Remember, would you look back again at Revelation 1-4? Remember, this is how we understood the reference to the seven spirits um, which are before his throne at the end of Revelation 1-4, where John told us, remember, in that verse he told us that the salutation blessing of grace and peace came from the one which is and which was and, it, and which is to come. Who's, that's a title for who? God the Father. And then look at verse 5. He said, this salutation, blessing of grace. Therefore, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, would be very, very strangely absent from presenting the salutation, blessing of grace and peace if seven angels were mentioned there in the middle between the other two members of the Trinity instead of the Holy Spirit, if you follow what I'm saying here. So therefore, we interpret the seven spirits before the throne of God as being the Holy Spirit, representative of the Holy Spirit. Ordinarily, the Holy Spirit is not humanly visible unless he is embodied in some fashion as he was at the Lord's baptism. You know, the eyewitnesses of that wonderful event saw the Holy Spirit as he descended on the Lord as a what? As a dove. And then he was again seen on the day of Pentecost as cloven tongues like as of fire. Now, in this heavenly scene in chapter 4 of Revelation, John is permitted to see the Holy Spirit as seven lamps of fire burning before the throne of God. What does fire do? If you think about fire, it, okay, it, I don't know what you're all saying. It warms, doesn't it? If you want to get close to a fire to be warm, it warms, it illuminates. In other words, it's like light, makes you be able to see, and it purges. Okay? Now, this will be the, it's also still right now, the work of the Holy Spirit during the time of the world's worst tribulation. He will both warm the hearts and minds of unsaved people. In other words, he will draw unsaved people to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will enlighten illuminate their minds with God's truth. And so many will be saved during the tribulation period, including much of Israel. And yet, he will not indwell believers in that day and age as he does now with church-age believers. And therefore, you see, because he won't be indwelling them, his restraining of evil ministry will not be active. And third, of course, the Holy Spirit will purge the world of the wicked. One of the Holy Spirit's ministries, we're told in John 16, 8, is to reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Therefore, the lamps of fire are in complete conformity, you see, with the scene of judgment that we have already seen depicted in this uh, throne room scene with the thunders and the lightnings and the voices coming from the throne. So this is a throne of judgment that we're looking at here. The green rainbow is for God's elect. So you see the difference. Now the Holy Spirit is described as seven spirits, but that does not mean that the Holy Spirit is seven persons. The number seven, as you all know, right, symbolizes perfection and completeness. And so this is speaking of the perfection and the completeness of the Spirit's ministry, and this is in complete keeping with the revelation that we receive receive in Isaiah 11:2 where the holy spirit is called by these seven titles that you see up here he's called the spirit of the lord the spirit of wisdom the spirit of understanding spirit of counsel the spirit of might the spirit of knowledge and the spirit of the fear of the lord 
Now, something else which John beheld before the throne of God, other than these seven lamps of fire, which represent the Holy Spirit, was what he could only describe as a sea of glass like unto crystal. Let's look at that in the first part of verse 6. He says, And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. Now, remember here, again, that John, throughout this, John is attempting to describe something heavenly, something otherworldly, in earthly terms. You know, something that you and I could at least try to imagine. Now, exactly what this is, we simply do not know. But the Old Testament does give us a little better insight about this strange sea of glass. In Exodus chapter 24... We learn that Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, along with the 70 elders of Israel, they left the camp in order to go up to Mount Sinai to get the law from God. And in verse 10 of that chapter, Exodus 24, Moses, who's the author of Exodus, recorded that they saw the God of Israel. Now, of course, they didn't see God in his fullness. They merely saw God's glory. But he says, they saw the God of Israel and there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of a sapphire stone and as it were the body of heaven in clearness. Now what Moses was describing here was a pavement of sapphire stone, which was like the body of heaven in clarity. Here again, we have the kind of transparent idea. Clearness. In other words, he and the others that were with him saw under God's throne, because it says under God's feet, they saw a pavement with substance, and yet it was transparent, and it was the brilliant color of sapphire stone. But sapphire is what color? It's a beautiful, rich, deep blue. At least the one you gave me is, that you all gave me. Now, as the light which emanates from God himself, can you imagine this? This, this stone pavement now under his feet, I mean this sapphire blue clear pavement underneath his feet. Remember that. Now, here's what we have. We have um, the light emanating from God himself, which has already been described as being brilliant purple and beautiful rich ruby red as that light passes through the emerald green rainbow which is going round about the throne and that you know as purple and red are passing through green that's sending off I mean blending to make a lot of other colors right and then that light hits the surface of this transparent sapphire blue pavement under God's feet, the effect must be like a prism. You know, reflected off of that crystal blue pavement would emerge every color imaginable and unimaginable, I imagine. (laughs) Oh, that was... Now, it's interesting that Ezekiel, this, is, this isn't the end of the throne room picture. All right, Ezekiel described a firmament above the heads of the four living creatures as they stood round about the throne of God. Ezekiel used the exact same word firmament that we find in Genesis 1, verses 6 and 7, you know, when God made a firmament over the, the earth. Um, Now, so this does not refer to just an empty space, but it refers to something that has substance. That firmament around the earth had substance. It was like a water vapor kind of a canopy thing that protected us. We weren't there, but you know what I mean. Now, he described this, Ezekiel described this heavenly firmament as, and here's his exact words, which are really strange. He says that it was as the color of the terrible crystal stretched forth over their heads above. That is in Ezekiel 1.22. And I thought, what in the world is he talking about? Terrible crystal. And I had to look that up. That was Ezekiel's way of describing ice crystals. Apparently, Ezekiel didn't like the cold. So he called it the terrible crystal. So the firmament was clear over the throne room 
of God. It was clear like ice crystals. So throw that in, you know, with all the other colors and everything and the color bouncing off the ice crystals. Later on in Revelation, we're going to read about the streets of heaven. The streets. Oh, got a picture. Just got this developed at Walmart after my last trip to heaven. Being silly. The streets of heaven. I I did find this woman who um, has drawn artwork. In case you've noticed a lot of new pictures, that she draws artwork on the book of Revelation, and she does it very accurately. I'll show you when I get to the four living beasts. I'm, I'm really happy because she reads the book before she makes the pictures. All right, what do we read that the streets of heaven are going to be made out of? You all know, pure gold. And yet, it tells us in 2121, Revelation 2121, that it's pure gold as it were transparent glass. Now, this, of course, is a mystery to you and I because we have no idea how pure gold can also be transparent. And yet, in heaven, it will be. Nothing is impossible for God. I mean, he made glass transparent. He made gold. He can certainly put the two qualities together if he wants to. Now, when we put together all the descriptions of heaven's throne room that we have from Moses and from Ezekiel and from John in the book of Revelation, we get the picture that everywhere one looks in heaven, whether looking above Below, around about, whatever, light must be bouncing off of that crystal firmament above and from the golden sea of glass below and all kinds of magnificent rich colors, you know, jasper purples and sardius reds and emerald greens and sapphire blues, the crystal sea, and transparent gold. All of these colors must be blending together to produce every color God's creativity can produce. And of course, his creativity is limitless. So it must just be a breathtaking sight to behold, to put it mildly. I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man, meaning we couldn't even begin to imagine the things that God hath prepared for them that love him. Wow. I hope you love him. I hope you know him so that one day you will see these things for yourself. I'm excited about seeing them. Let's look now at the throng. Round about the throne of God, there were two groups of heavenly beings, and both groups were seen by John to be worshiping and glorifying God. The first group was the four and twenty elders. As I said, we're going to mention them next week. Uh, The second group was made up of four living beasts. So let's look at them now. And for for them, we have to jump down. Well, we're in six. Let's look at the last part of six and read through verse eight. After he talks about the sea of glass, John says, and in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. Now, if you notice in this picture that this woman drew, these beasts have got eyes. I don't know if you can see that, but she she read that about the eyes, so she has eyes all over them. The eyes are in the front of them, and the eyes are in the back of them. And he says in verse 7, And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf. And that is a calf of an ox, by the way. And the third beast had a face of a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within. Okay? Not only do they have eyes all on the outside, but they have eyes inside of them. How did John see that? I do not know, but he knew they had eyes inside of them. And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. I'm sorry, we need to read all the way through 9. And when those beasts gave glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever. And then it goes on in in verse 10 to tell us about the 24 elders. You know, God only has two types of rebels in all of the universe. He has fallen angels and fallen men. 
Well, John, what John saw now around the heavenly throne were the elect angels, not the fallen angels. He saw the elect, unfallen, holy angels. Now, the first group, this, this group of elect angels, is represented by these four living creatures. The original word, I know in our King James it says beast, beast, beast. But the original word in the original Greek is the word zoon, Z-O-O-N, which literally means living ones. The, the word zoe in Greek means life. This is where we get our word for zoo. And after reading this, we feel like we've been to the zoo, don't we? But a different word, an entirely different word, therion, means beast. Actually, it literally means a wild, vicious beast. So this isn't the word therion. This is the word zoon, which is a living creature. It is really better translated as a living creature. The word therion is what is used for the beast that comes out of the sea in, in Revelation chapter 13. And that, of course, is speaking of the Antichrist. We don't have a wicked beast in front of the throne of God. These are holy angels here. Now, the four creatures are described, as I said, as being full of eyes, not only on the outside, but inside as well. One creature is said to have a face like a lion, another like a calf of an ox, and I'll talk about that in a minute. A third has a face like a man, and the fourth has a face like a flying eagle. All of them have six wings, three pairs of wings, and we're told that they never ever rest day or night from saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And from also, in verse 9, from giving glory and honor and thanks to the one who is on the throne. Now, once again, we must remember that John here is trying to describe something heavenly in earthly terms. Whether or not these creatures really, really look like this, we cannot say. Maybe God just had them appear like this to John so that he could then describe them in a way which would help his readers to understand the attributes of these creatures. We don't know for sure. We don't know. And we won't know until we get to heaven and look around and see if we see them looking like this. However, we do know that these four living creatures before God's throne are representative of the attributes and the qualities of God. You know, just like the Holy Spirit was represented by the seven lamps of fire, so the attributes of God in general are represented by these four angelic beings. For example, we know that the eyes that are all over these creatures, inside and outside, Represent or symbolize the omniscience of God. They're not omniscient, the creatures, because no creature is omniscient, all-knowing. Only God is all-knowing. So they symbolize the characteristics of God. Remember, John couldn't see God. So these angels represent the characteristics and the attributes of God. Now, John was not the first one to receive a vision like this of these multi-optic, six-winged living creatures. Isaiah had a very similar vision, and he told us that with two wings they covered their... Remember Isaiah's in chapter 6 of Isaiah? Two they covered their faces, two they covered their feet, and with the other two they flew. And because Isaiah didn't know what to call these creatures, he called them seraphim. You know why he called them seraphim? Because seraphim, seraphim means burning ones. And what did one of those creatures do? Took a coal, a hot burning coal, and put it to Isaiah's lips. So Isaiah called them burning ones, or seraphim. Now we might ask, why are these creatures seen with four different faces? And actually, to tell you the truth, we don't know for sure. But there are a number of possible explanations for their four different faces. Some people have said that it is because they represent God's four types of created beings on earth. And because they are also angelic, they therefore also represent the whole angelic realm as well. And therefore we could say that they represent all of God's creation. The Jewish Talmud tells us that there are four primary forms of life in God's earthly creatures. Earthly. I'm not talking about heavenly. First among all is man, of course. God also created the domestic animals, 
and the strongest of the domestic animals is the ox, and that is represented by the angel with the face as a calf. The actual Greek word, which has been translated here as calf, is the word mochos, and it means literally a young ox or a young bull. And by the way, this is where we get our English word macho. So next time some macho man is feeling his Wheaties, you can tell him that he is a young ox, and an ox was known for being a servant and a laborer and also used as a sacrifice. So that'll take the steam out of him. Now, there are also, besides being man and the domesticated animals, there are also the undomesticated or the wild animals, you know, the wild animal kingdom. And who's the king of the wild animals? The lion. Fourthly, there's the whole realm of bird life, and the eagle is supreme in this realm. So the four living creatures, one with the face of a man, one with the face of a a young ox, one with the face of a lion, one with the face of an eagle, could, I'm not saying they do, but they could symbolize all of God's created life on earth. And by the way, the number four, there are four of them, number four in the Bible is God's number for the earth. Okay, that's why we have four directions, north, south, east, west, four corners of the world, four seasons, four earthly empires, etc., etc. Now, because God is the creator, everything that he has created in one way or another represents or presents his attributes and his characteristics. Man, the greatest of God's creation, represents God's intelligence, and his rational powers, and his ability to love. You know, man is the only creature who has the ability to love and to feel emotions. Then the ox represents the patience and the continuous labor of God. The lion symbolizes God's majesty and his power, and the eagle speaks of his supremacy and his sovereignty. But the depths of Scripture once again is realized as we see how also these four living creatures could symbolize the Lord Jesus Christ in a manner which to me seems to be just more than coincidence here they correspond these four creatures correspond to the four major aspects of Christ as he is presented to us in the four gospels which, of course, tell us about the Lord's life on earth. That's why there's four, because four is the number of earth. Now, in the Gospel of Matthew, Christ is presented as the lion from the tribe of Judah. He's revealed in Matthew as the king, right? Those of you that were here with our study of the life of Christ. In Mark, the Lord is represented as a servant, the servant of Jehovah. He's patient and he's continuously laboring. In Mark, we just read about his works. He's working, working, working as the ox. So the ox goes along with the book of Mark. Then in Luke, Christ is presented as the son of man. In his humanity, that's what's stressed, is his humanity. In other words, Christ is man as man was supposed to be, as man was meant to be. Perfectly intelligent, perfectly rational, and perfectly full of love. And then the Gospel of John presents Christ, of course, as the Son of God. John presents him as deity. He is sovereign and he is supreme in heaven as the eagle is supreme in the atmospheric heaven. So I think that's a little more than just coincidence. Also, the ancient rabbinical writers describe that the tribes of Israel pitched their tents and their flag. They had banners. Each tribe not only had a stone... But they had a banner, okay? So they pitched their tents and their banners on the four sides of the tabernacle. Well, you know, around the tabernacle. But on the four corners of the tabernacle, there was, first of all, the tribe of Judah in one corner, and their banner had a lion on it. Then in another corner was the tribe of Ephraim, and their banner had an ox on it. Then there was the tribe of Reuben, Their banner had a man on it. And the last tribe in the last corner was the tribe of Dan, 
represented by an eagle. There was an eagle on their banner. So again, we could see here also God's covenant relationship with his people, with Israel. What is it that these four living creatures are doing? Well, they are doing what all of creation has been created to do. They are praising God. It tells us they rest not day or night, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Praise is the eternal activity of God's creatures. You know, God is seen in chapter 4 as creator. That's the main emphasis. He's creator. And he is worshipped in regard to his creative majesty in this section because he is about to deal with the earth, his greatest creation. You know, man, of course, on the earth. Now, why does he have the right and the authority to judge man down there on the earth? Because, the answer is because he is its creator and he is man's creator, so he has that right. The living creatures repeatedly issue out the words holy, holy, holy. Now think about, why do they say holy, holy, holy? Why don't they say wise, wise, wise? Why don't they say omnipotent, omnipotent, omnipotent? Or love, love, love? like some preachers like to just stress. Why do they say holy, holy, holy? Well, the answer is because God's God's holiness is magnified because it is his holiness which makes it absolutely necessary for him to judge what? Sin. Only an unholy God would wink at sin and let sin go unpunished. Furthermore, the four living creatures refer to the one on the throne as Lord God Almighty. And I told you earlier that that, those are the Hebrew words Jehovah, Elohim, El Shaddai. And again, there are three names mentioned here, probably because of the Trinity, the triune Godhead, three persons in one. And this not only serves to remind John and you and I, that the one on the throne is none other than absolute deity. I mean, he is Lord God Almighty. But he is also, it reminds us that he is also here in this scene getting ready to again deal with Israel. Because these three names, Jehovah, Elohim, El Shaddai, are names which were first given in connection with his chosen people of Israel. Now, in our next lesson... Next week, we are going to talk about the other group which John was privileged to behold before the throne of God. And this group is described to us as the four and twenty elders. And there is a lot of debate. That's why I really couldn't just stick it on at the end of this lesson because it's going to take me a a while to explain the different... Um, thoughts about who these 24 elders represent. Some say that they represent another group of angels. Others say no. They represent the 12 tribes of Israel plus the 12 apostles of the church. So they represent Israel and the church. 12 and 12 is 24. And yet others say no, they represent just the church. So we're going to discuss all of these possibilities next week, Lord willing, and we're going to see which one that we believe is the most biblically possible, although we cannot be dogmatic about a lot of these things. All right.